This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. It's page 831 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God and ask now as we study for your grace, for your light, that we might profit, Father, that you would nourish our souls, that you would grow us in grace in the contemplation, and in the application of your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to chapter 26. We come to a major turning point in Matthew's gospel. It comes, as we've seen, on the heels of the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus speaks uh, both about the end of Jerusalem as well as the end of the world and his own glorious return in salvation and in judgment. And Matthew notes this in verse 1 by saying, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, which most directly refers back to chapters 24 and 25, which we've been studying over the last few weeks, there's also a sense of finality to it. All these sayings, not just the Olivet Discourse, but everything that Jesus has been teaching. Because you see, with this verse, we come to the end of Jesus' public teaching ministry. And at this point in the gospel, everything is focusing on and geared toward and moving toward the cross. And so with these verses and with these next few passages, we see the approach of the cross, everything leading up to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion, his death and his burial. But as we look at these verses, uh, verses 1 through 5, we see here a contrast, contrast between Christ and his enemies, a contrast between the grace of God in Christ and the antagonism of his enemies. But we can also see in this a bigger picture. Because this is really a picture of God and humanity. A picture of the grace of God in Christ and the natural response of fallen sinful man to God. 
We see it personified, of course, in Jesus, but also in these leaders of Israel. So let's observe a couple of things in this passage. First of all, the grace of God in Christ, dying for sinners. The grace we see in Christ as he is willing to give himself up for sinners in verses 1 and 2. Now, as we look at these verses, uh, several things here, looking at his grace. First of all, you see his power, the power of Jesus. And we've seen this before. Now, Jesus was fully man, fully God, but fully man. And we've noticed as we've studied the life, the ministry of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, how at times Jesus' knowledge was as the knowledge of any other person. His knowledge seemed limited in his humanity. For example, the woman who bumps up against him in the crowd and Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples say, how can you ask who touched me with all these people thronging about? But at other times, Jesus displays a supernatural knowledge, such as when he instructed Peter to go catch a fish, and in the mouth of the fish you'd find a coin, things no human being could, could know. Well, Jesus' knowledge, as everything else in his life, was in submission to the will of his Father. He knew what it was his Father's will that he should know. For example, he demonstrates a supernatural knowledge of the future here, But just a few passages earlier, he said that he doesn't know, even he himself, the time of his return. Only the Father knows that. Well, here we see Jesus' power in his ability to know the future. You know, he says to his disciples, that after two days, the Passover is coming. They know that, that that was on the calendar But there was nothing supernatural about that. But this is what they didn't know. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, this is in Matthew's Gospel the fourth time that Jesus has spoken to his disciples about his coming death. Every time they either seem not to to hear what he's saying or they reject what he's saying, Uh, Lord, no, this will never happen to you. Uh, And yet Jesus is telling them again and again, and maybe more times than is recorded, but we're going by what we have here in the gospel, that this is coming up. However, when Jesus tells them at this point, he reveals a couple of things. He reveals that his death is going to be in connection with the Passover. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He puts those events together. Now, we're not going to say a great deal about the Passover at this point, because it really, uh, Matthew gets into that a little bit more in a uh, few verses later, verses uh, 17 and following, and 26, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Lord willing, we'll look at that in more depth when we come to it. But uh, for now, it's enough simply to say that the Passover began with the sacrifice of a lamb or a kid, a baby goat. Uh, And the Passover commemorated, of course, uh, Israel's delivery from their slavery in Egypt. God's bringing them out. And it uh, was, at this point, the initiation of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which took place for the next week. Uh, And so Jesus is connecting his death with the Passover Uh, At least we know the rest of the story, at least for his disciples, putting those two ideas together. Passover began with a sacrifice, and Jesus is saying at that time, 
the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. But he also reveals not only the time, that this isn't something in the vague distant future, but this is something coming up very soon. But he also speaks here of both the Jewish and the Roman involvement in that. Notice what he says, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Delivered up, handed over by whom? Well, implicitly by someone, by the Jews, to be crucified. That's not something the Jews could do. The Romans uh, executed and the Romans particularly crucified. And so Jesus indicates here his knowledge of the future, both of the timing and the circumstances of his own death. But you notice here not only his power seen in his grace, but also his priority. Think of what has just followed. Think of what the disciples have been hearing. Uh, Evidently, these words follow very closely on what Jesus taught in Matthew 25, that passage that uh, in each of its sections has to do with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, a return that will mean judgment for those who do not know him, those who have rejected him, those who are not prepared through repentance and faith for his return. Uh, but it also means salvation for those who are in him. It means entering into the joy of our master. It means being a participant in that great wedding feast. So Jesus' return means judgment for his enemies. It means glory for his people. Magnificent things to contemplate and think about. And, And come, Lord Jesus, and we want this now. And suddenly Jesus goes back. But... After two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Where's the glory? Where's the joy? Where's the celebration? Well, it's coming, but something else has to come first. You see, you see Jesus' priority here. Jesus recognizes the cross comes first, and then the crown. For Jesus' followers, to be able to participate in that wedding feast... For Jesus' followers to be able to enter into the joy of their master, for Jesus' followers to be welcomed into glory, Jesus himself has to go to the cross to make that possible, to purchase their redemption. Else they too would be outside that closed and locked and barred door. Jesus recognizes the priority of the cross and then the crown. We don't like that. Because Jesus' pattern is our pattern. We want the glory. We want it now. And let's just skip that that cross part. Let's just skip being identified with Christ in his sufferings, which Paul, by the way, indicates is a privilege. We have the privilege, he says to the Philippians, of, of sharing in Christ's sufferings. We have the privilege of being made like him in his death. Why is that a privilege? It's a privilege because it's identification with Jesus. And to be identified with Jesus in anything is an immense privilege. But just as Jesus faced first the crown, first the cross, then the crown, so we who follow him face the cross and then enjoy the crown. We don't want to forget that. To forget that can mean disillusionment. I'm a Christian. Why is this happening to me? I follow you, Jesus. Why are these things happening? Well, they happen because they happened to Jesus. Jesus suffered and then entered into his glory. Well, we who follow him may share in his sufferings. The world rejects 
him. It rejects those who follow him. But the consolation is that as we are identified with him in his sufferings, we are also sharing with him in that glory that he won for us. So you see here his power in knowing the future, his priority in always going back and placing the cross first, and then the crown, then the joy, then the celebration. But you also see here his preparation of his disciples. You know, Jesus keeps telling them this. Why? They don't seem to get it. It just seems to bother them. Why not just tell them what they want to hear and make them happy? We were traveling on vacation. I was reminded once again of long journeys. You know, and the, the inevitable question, are we there yet? I always just say yes. Why not? Just tell them what they want to hear. Make them happy. Uh, yeah, I, I would say no. Oh, you know, so that just, yes. Well, Jesus doesn't tell us just what we want. Okay. We, we do clear that up. We sometimes get metaphysical. Well, we were there, now we're here. When you ask the question, we were there, now we're here. And by the time you ask the question, we'll be there, but no longer here. And that usually by that point, they're looking out the window and have gone on to other things. Well, Jesus doesn't tell his disciples what they want to hear. He tells them what they need to hear. And what they need to hear is what's going to happen to him, even if at that point it's difficult for them or even incomprehensible for them. Is it because when these things happen, they'll say, oh, yes, Jesus told us these things are going to happen, and so they'll be able to handle it well? No. Because when these things started happening, it only confused, it only frightened the disciples. Uh, it was a terrible stumbling block for them. They fled. Why does Jesus tell them this? He tells them this so that after he is crucified and after he has been raised from the dead, and especially after he has poured out on them his Holy Spirit, they will look back and they, say, and they will say, Jesus told us this all along. As difficult as it was, he was right. And as scary as it was, it led to good. That's why Jesus kept telling them this. To confirm later that he was who he said he was. For the same reason he did the miracles. To confirm his identity as the Messiah. Well, this was sort of a, a well-after-the-fact confirmation that they only see years later. As everything fell into place and they began to understand, Jesus had told us this all along. So his preparation in that, you see his regard for his disciples, his understanding of their need to have the truth confirmed. Just one more confirmation that Jesus was who he said he was. The grace of Christ in coming and dying for sinners. But then you see the contrast very quickly put right next to it. The wickedness of man and his hatred of Christ. Here you have Jesus who came to give himself for people who were eminently unworthy of that sacrifice. But then you see the hostility of man toward God, even in that most gracious act of the incarnation of Jesus. The wickedness, hard-heartedness of man and his hatred of Christ in verses 3 through 5. As we look at these verses, it might be helpful to approach them by asking some of the journalistic questions. First of all, who? Who are we talking about here? Chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest. Who is here? Well, we have the chief priests 
elders of the people, uh, key leaders in the Sanhedrin, the elders being what we might describe as lay leaders. Interestingly, neither the Pharisees nor the Sadducees are mentioned here. Primarily because this isn't so much a theological dispute as it is a political maneuver. The chief priests, the elders of the people, these weren't the religious leaders. These were the politically connected leaders. These were the ones who had, uh, perhaps for some, an uneasy alliance with Rome. Because Rome provided stability for their power. Rome provided the context in which they had comfortable and influential lives. And so that's who these were that Jesus refers to here, or the word of God refers to, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathering in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. Palace may be too fancy a word. This was his home. It may have been a nice house. We tend to think palace, you know, we think Cinderella's castle or something like that. Uh, no doubt a, a, a nice home, but this man wasn't a king. He was, he was, he, he was a, uh, the high priest, a religious but mostly political leader, Caiaphas. And they gather there uh, in a meeting. This brings us to the what. What was going on? Well, they plot together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth. Some translations render it uh, slyly or craftily, uh, something that was to be done under the surface, something that was to be done with as little notice as possible, and not only to arrest Jesus, but to kill him. They were gathering to plot murder. They wanted to get rid of Jesus once and for all. They didn't just want to silence him by getting him out of town or out of the country. They wanted him dead. Why? Who? These leaders. What, what is it? Well, it's a plot to finally get rid of Jesus once and for all. But why? What has Jesus done that would bring about this kind of reaction? Well, as you look at the Gospel of Matthew and the others as well, you'll see various reactions to Jesus among these leaders and others. One was no doubt jealousy. Uh, they Their eyes sort of glowed red as they saw the, uh, or green as they saw the, uh, crowds going after Jesus, the kind of following that he was attracting. They were jealous of that. Another reason people responded with hatred and opposition, if not murder, and including murder, to Jesus was exposure. Jesus exposed particularly the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, for who they were. Whitewashed tombs. Remember Matthew 23, an entire chapter where Jesus pronounces woe after woe on them because they're empty shells, because they have this veneer of righteousness, but there's no reality to it because they do all these outward, external, legalistic things that they pass off as godliness, and yet in their hearts they are as wicked and corrupt and self-serving and proud as can be. And so Jesus, both by his direct denunciations, as well as the, uh, the purity, the evident righteousness of his own life, exposed them and made them uncomfortable, and they didn't like that. Another reason, and perhaps the reason for these men uh, and their response to Jesus, was a threat. There were people who wanted to take Jesus and make him a king. 
This man was, for them, not so much a religious difficulty as he was a political threat. This man could lead a revolt. This man could lead an uprising and could be a direct threat to them in possibly removing them, taking their place, or an indirect threat to their power in that if riots start developing, if there's turmoil, if there's chaos, then the Romans come in and crack down and they may lose their place. They may lose their power, their influence as the Romans come in to put down a rebellion. And so Jesus, either directly or indirectly, is a threat. And for these reasons, certainly, they oppose Jesus. But there's a deeper reason, a theological reason. It goes back to our fallen natures and how by nature we respond to God. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. The mind set on the flesh is hostile by nature, by definition, to God. Dear friends, these were men whose minds were set on the flesh. And by that, what Paul is saying is that their whole orientation is toward themselves and their desires and their ambitions and their pride instead of toward God and his glory and his purposes. And that's all of us. Apart from God's grace, apart from salvation in Christ, every one of us is that way. And so by nature, God is a threat because we want to be God. And so we are opposed to God and his truth and his work by nature, apart from his grace. And that's where these men were. So whatever the, the, the superficial reason was, whether it's jealousy or exposure or political threat, the real reason for their opposition is the fallen man, natural man, people, men and women and children, are by nature opposed to God, and here was God standing, working, living, teaching in their midst. And so they opposed him, and they wanted to get rid of him. That's why. When? Well, they said not during the feast. We don't want to create you know, during the feast, Jerusalem's uh, population swells some fivefold. The place is packed. And religious fervor, uh, messianic anticipation is, is at a high. And boy, if they try to do something to Jesus then, people coming down from Galilee and the, the leaders arrest a man from Nazareth, it could get ugly. And they didn't want that. They didn't want a riot. They didn't want chaos. They didn't want to attract the negative attention of Rome. Not during the feast. But they were wrong. Notice Jesus was right. In two days, Passover, Son of Man will be delivered up. That wasn't their plan. Their plan was certainly not during the feast. But they didn't know about something that would happen. They didn't know this man named Judas, Judas Iscariot, would come to them with a plan. But Jesus did. And Jesus said in two days. You see, they were wrong. They didn't know how this was going to play out. They were only fallible men. But Jesus did. And Jesus was right. They said not during the feast. Jesus said, after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up. This passage reveals to us the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And in Christ, knowing what was to come, went ahead with it 
anyway. He didn't run. He didn't go into hiding. He didn't flee. He knew what had to happen. And because he loved his sheep and wanted to redeem them, he went ahead with it anyway. Because he loved you and me, wanted our salvation, he pressed on. But this passage also reveals the knife edge that Jesus is to us. You see, Jesus cuts. Jesus divides. When it comes to Jesus, you either have to go one way or you have to go the other you have to recognize that he is God's provision for the salvation of helpless sinners like you and me, or you have to oppose him. He allows no neutrality. To attempt to be neutral is to oppose him, is to miss out on the salvation he came to bring. You see, by nature, you and I are like the chief priests and the elders. We oppose Christ. Your opposition may not be as visible or as graphic or as violent or as crass as it was in these men, but it's there. In our fallen nature, we're like the, the, like the people in the parable Jesus told. We will not have this man to rule over us. But in his grace, God also opens the eyes to see who Jesus is, changes our hearts to remove that enmity, that hostility, that opposition. And may God open our eyes to see our need of Christ, to believe in him, or to see that need afresh and to believe in him with new zeal and new delight so that we would be enabled to believe in him, to follow him, to be saved by him. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize even as Christians, how wayward our hearts can attempt to be. Father, we thank you that we've died with Christ. Thank you, Lord, that the power of our old nature is broken. But, Lord, here we have graphically illustrated the reality, both of your grace, but of the hardness of the human heart in face of it. Lord, may it not be so with us, that we would believe in Jesus, that we would submit to your glorious and gracious and loving reign over our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.